Indeedy. Welcome to the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. This is episode number 12, The Dirty Dozen. And we are coming to you live and direct from Oakland, California. Deep bow to all tuning in. The bank statements have definitely changed for one Anderson Pack. We'll get to him a little later, but this dude's taking the the scene by storm. Um, but before we get into fawning over our dear Anderson Pack, uh, I want to take a moment to give thanks and shout out. Our friends at Live for Live Music. Live for Live Music uh, is not only the home to most of my published writing, but is a phenomenal promoter and producer of events, and is just a hub of all things of the jam and jazz funk, New Orleans jam cruise, and even into the electronic music realms, uh, spiraling out in many directions. And uh, LiveForLiveMusic.com is the home base for all things uh, for the company and I've been privileged to write uh, articles and features and interviews and all kinds of content for them for a few years now and uh, super grateful for the opportunities that have come my way uh, through my affiliation with Live for Live Music. They have an amazing staff starting at the top with the founder, Kunj, Kunj Shah, who is a real mover and shaker in this industry and Somebody I've watched a uh, meteoric rise to prominence and um, that commands a lot of respect and uh, privilege to work with him and work for him. And uh, his staff he's put together through the years at Live for Live Music has really uh, been good to me and good to the community. So, yeah, we got uh, his wife, Sarah, formerly Fuhrer, now Sarah Shah who uh, has a major role at the company, as does the vice president, uh, Kendall Deflin, who I've worked extensively with in an editorial capacity, um, Andrew O'Brien, and before him, Mingli Newcomb, 
and before her, David Melamed, just a solid team at Live for Live Music, and uh, they kind of green light me to sort of chase my muse, and uh, I like to think that um, I provide the content for them that they desire, and most recently, I would say, uh, with the Anderson Pack review that uh, put together on the heels of the opening night of his tour here in San Francisco, uh, has gotten a lot of run and a lot of traction, a lot of shares, and I'm super grateful and honored that uh, I was able to uh, step in and cover this, uh, you know, just lightning rod artist and once in a generation talent. Um, and triumphant story. Um, I hopefully will have more opportunities uh, moving forward to write about, cover, feature, and hopefully interview Anderson Pack. But for now, I was uh, really afforded an opportunity through uh, the great Maurice Brown, who's a stalwart trumpet player in the jazz, funk, jam, hip-hop communities, and he's a uh, new member of Anderson Pack's Free Nationals touring band, and uh, that's how I ended up with the opportunity to cover this show. Uh, Anderson Pack and the Free Nationals, it was uh, February 11 at the Masonic in San Francisco, and you can find uh, my thoughts and the narrative of the evening and a sort of introduction to this new Oxnard era of Anderson Pack's live performances um all that can be found uh live for live music uh, the name of the article is there will be no simpin uh turn a phrase i borrowed from him obviously and uh really proud of this one really grateful for live for live music giving me the easel and uh, allowing me the opportunity to wax philosophic about this artist beyond description so yeah big up live for live music big up anderson pack and the free nationals large up maurice brown and uh be on the lookout for the quote best teef in the game tour which was just announced earlier today uh homie wasted no time striking while the iron was hot and uh the andy's beach club sort of promo tour, if you will, that I wrote the article about the opening night for, concluded this weekend in Philadelphia, and a couple days, maybe like a hundred hours later, a huge tour, which touches, and to my knowledge, just off of who I've heard from, it's Red Rocks, and Chicago, and Philly, at the brand new Met in Philly, so I'm gonna have to send my mom to that one. Um, yeah, Anderson Pack doing it big. Check out my thoughts on liveforlivemusic.com. Shout out Kunj, Sarah, Kendall, Andrew, and the whole squad. I got so excited about that announcement and talking about Live for Live Music in the article that I neglected to add there is a new Anderson Pack album coming out on Aftermath called Ventura. I uh, talked about it recently in a DJ Booth article. Um, I was so pumped about the new mention, the new album. April 12th, Ventura, Anderson Pack. Twice inside of a year, full-length LPs. So really excited about it after having read that article and uh, in DJ Booth and listening to him on the Mark Marin podcast. Um, has me just 
bubbling with excitement and uh so much so that i neglected to mention the album and i was gonna do the whole take over again and then i was like oh your people will understand so i'm just tacking this on at the end here and uh we'll move on to the naughty princess segment I'm your host, B. Getz, and moving onward, um, lucky and privileged and super stoked to have an amazing guest on episode 12. Her name is Jasmine Frazier. She performs as the Naughty Princess. She is a phenomenal DJ and budding producer, but primarily a selecta out here on the West Coast bass music scene. Uh, I first connected with her in the aftermath of Enchanted Forest 2016. I was kind of told to keep an eye on her. She was going places, and that's exactly what happened. And I've been a, a supporter of hers for some time now. And uh, always, you know, getting behind uh, her efforts, whatever they may be, at different festivals, and club shows, and parties, and so forth. And it's really been uh, amazing to watch her... Um, just rise slowly and steadily not so slowly anymore but uh she's uh you know her font is getting larger on the festival flyers and she's playing later in the evening and headlining events and it's been just awesome to watch from afar and and have a friendship and, and relationship uh connection with jasmine so i invited her on the podcast and uh you know, we talked about a lot of things uh, that would be of interest to this listenership. Um, among them, uh, we talked about her youth in Melbourne, Australia, and living and uh, traveling from ashram to ashram with her mother, being around ecstatic chanting, and, you know, the earliest impressions those experiences had on her. And, getting into trance music first, moving to the Bay, you know, getting kind of quasi-adopted by Antenna under his wing, kind of, you know, seeing Bass Nectar on his way up at a small club in San Fran, and her just arriving in the States and kind of just immersing herself in the Burning Man community and the West Coast dance music communities. And then we arrive at uh, the topic of her father, the late Andy Fraser, um, where um, we kind of connect originally uh, after I was kind of uh, tuned to her DJ career we crossed paths on the playa at Burning Man 2016 and 
both of us were literally and figuratively carrying the grief from our respective father's deaths uh, the previous year. And her father, Andy Fraser, is a legendary bassist uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a part of the British rock band Free, a cl- uh, classic rock band. And um, he is a very influential bass player. Um, Jamiroquai's bassist, the erstwhile Paul Turner, uh, credits Andy Fraser as being the number one reason he picked up the bass guitar. He said it was the purest expression of musical art he'd ever heard at a formative age. And, and you can hear w- where he's taken that muse and inspiration. And he credits Jasmine's dad, Andy. And so does she in a different way, uh, as she'll describe how it was his death and uh, the musical DNA that he had instilled in her that propelled her to follow her own muse and step into her musical self as Naughty Princess. It's a really beautiful tale and it's really the embryo of our connection, uh, her and mine, and we explore that a little bit. Um, We also talk uh, about some other topics of note, such as the inherent patriarchy in the music uh, business and festival world, and also, you know, the misogyny and inherent harmful language uh, native to trap music and rap music and how does she navigate that as a you know card-carrying feminist Um, we talk a lot about um, how fans feel when they hear certain words or messages or songs and she retells a story as such about a fan and her interaction in the aftermath of that and how it's affected her moving forward Uh, We talk about the difference between the intention of playing an ecstatic dance versus uh, lacing up the urban club dance floor. Um, And that's just a few of the topics that we discuss, but it it was a very interesting and fascinating conversation that would have been longer, however, um, somewhere between getting off the BART train in San Francisco and arriving to Jasmine, I had dropped my phone. But I must have some decent, uh, or good, I should say, karma with regards to that sort of thing because a gentleman contacted Jasmine, who was like my last call, and uh, she drove me over to a different BART station where the man was with my phone. Um, Wouldn't accept any money or anything. He just said, you'll do the same thing next time, and I hope that everyone hears this story well because it was really save the day shit and uh sam wherever you are out there thank you but so jasmine uh drove me to get the phone and that cut into our interview time and instead of going back to the lovely cozy confines we'd initially planned to do the interview where she'd invited me uh instead uh, she pulled over in her gold minivan in a random neighborhood in san francisco and we just jumped in the back of the minivan i took out the recorder and We did the interview right then and there in the rain on some odd random block uh, out by Balboa Park stop. So that's how this came to fruition. And uh, I was just lucky that I got it off at all. Super grateful for Dude Who Found the Phone. Big up Sam. And of course, a huge thank you to Jasmine for this um, very entertaining and enjoyable powwow that we shared. So... I'm going to play a song of hers, her, which she describes in the interview, a collaboration with Antenna called Hearts. 
I'll play a portion of that song and then we'll play her interview. And then I'll be back with a few comments before we get into uh, a couple shorter interviews on the back end. And of course, the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. What you're listening to now as we go outro is uh, Jasmine Naughty Princess's uh, sunrise set on the white morning on the Abraxas Dragon art car Burning Man this past year. Um, just probably my favorite morning on Playa and to be asked to perform that on Abraxas is quite the honor and it says in itself um, just how far she's come as a DJ. So big up Abraxas crew, you know, Faux Mirage, the whole team, Freaker Tim, shout out Abraxas. You're listening to the Up Full Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. Yes, indeedy. neighborhood in San Francisco. I'm not exactly sure where. It's the Up Full Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and I am here with the lovely and talented Jasmine Frazier, who performs as Naughty Princess. Thank you, Jasmine, for uh, taking a few minutes out of your day. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it almost didn't happen. For the, those listening at home, we were just about to sit down and do the interview. Uh, at a lovely home here in San Francisco when I realized that my phone was MIA. Uh, no sooner than that, uh, my Jasmine's phone rang with my phone with a, a person who works at the uh, BART train system here had picked up my phone where I dropped it minutes earlier. And uh, lucky for me, Jasmine was kind enough to drive me to retrieve my phone. So now we're pressed for time. And, uh, Nothing was, like a good adventure though, right? Exactly. We're making it, it happen. Yeah, so <laughs> we pulled over in this random neighborhood after uh, we retrieved my phone and we're just sitting in uh, the naughty minivan. I mean, does it have a name? Uh, it's been called Many Things. Um, it's the Princess Mobile. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, it's great. Lots of shenanigans have happened right here. <laughs> I bet. Well, I'm honored to conduct the interview in these uh, sacred environment. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, lucky for us, uh, Jasmine played a gig here in Oakland last night as a part of the Resonate Party. Um, she played uh, last, just after midnight, to a packed room. What was it like to come back to uh, Oakland and, and see that turnout? It was fantastic. Um, 
I absolutely love the Bay Area. I never really intended to move away. It just kind of happened that way. So every time I get to come back, especially to play music and see all the homies and get down on the dance floor, um, I'm thrilled. And yeah, I saw a lot of faces that I hadn't seen for a while last night. So I was, I was absolutely stoked with the turnout. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it was a great party and uh, uh, Smashel Tooth made a triumphant return to the Bay Area. So she played also. And, uh, and she's such a hero of mine. I can't tell you. Like, she, she's been an icon in my mind well before I decided to become a DJ. And just to get to play with her, you know. Awesome. That is, that is. Um, so let's get uh, people a little bit familiar with you. Um, you know, who you are and, and your path to DJing. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, Australia and, and how your family found their way to the States and just kind of fill people in on, on the basics, if you would okay, mind. Sure. You, I never know where to start with those kinds of questions because there's many different stories I could go with. But um, I grew up in Melbourne for the most part. Uh, which was fantastic because they had a really strong electronic music scene um, early on and uh, so I got into trance when that came you know in the heyday of trance I'd go out to forest parties like Earthcore um, I got to go through a lot of different genres there they got into drum and bass and jungle and uh, break beats and uh, yeah, it's a very thriving scene. It's very similar to the Bay Area. Um, lots of culture, lots of um, different different people, different ideas. So it was a fantastic place to grow up and that definitely gave me the love of electronic music that's driven me for the rest of my life. Um, and yeah, I, uh, I was living in Byron Bay uh, for a while and got to the point where I really just needed more music in my life, like more dance floors, basically, okay. which is why I moved to the Bay Area in 2009. Um, and that just put me right in the center, I feel, of the most amazing music scene in the world. Um, you know, I've been to Bruni Man pretty much every year since then. Um, yeah, just getting to meet a whole bunch of people that I've become friends with that are also my heroes. It's just, I'm definitely living the dream, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. when you perform, you look like you are because you're clearly very joy-filled and there's a lot of just happiness coming from the stage out into the crowd. So you can tell, you know, you can tell you're living the dream. It's it definitely shows. my happy place. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Right on. <laughs> Well, I always kind of wondered, because obviously we can hear the accent, and I know a little bit about your history, but I wasn't sure when you arrived in the States. Um, and so you came first to the Bay Area. Yeah, I moved to San Francisco. Um, I'd never been here before. I didn't have any friends here. Uh, I just knew that I needed, um, I needed more music, more action. Right. Um, and Took a chance. Yeah, I'd, I'd started hearing music uh, from San Francisco. Uh, I think it was Soma FM I was listening to on internet radio. And I was okay. like, yeah, this is where it's at. This is happening. You know, I'd heard Beats Antique. That was one of the first groups that I knew of that were based in this area. So I came here just, you know, 
I was like, this is where I need to be. And I showed up and it was fantastic. It was like one of the best decisions of my life. Right on. Who, who were uh, like some of the cats performers in the Bay Area at that time? Like you said, the music scene was really thriving. Just take us back about 10 years ago. What, you know, whether or not they're still the hot thing, what was really, you know, really hot back in when you arrived in 09, 2010? Uh, well, one of the first acts I got to see was Bass Nectar playing at 1015 Folsom. So wow. that was fantastic. Um, in fact, the first event that I attended was How Weird Street Fair. And so, you know, they had uh, maybe three or four art cars from Burning Man. You know, people had just taken over all of the streets it was just I was a kid in a candy store there was drum and bass there was you know dubstep and grime and like everything it was um it was fantastic um Antenna was one of the first right um that I really started following uh and I'm still following him he's amazing <laughs> he's very prolific man he puts out a ton of music yeah he does and you collaborated with him one of your first productions right i did i was lucky enough to uh get in the studio with him he was very generous he'd, he'd come off like a big weekend playing in uh, red rocks and somewhere else as well and uh, i think i just played uh at how weird that weekend as well so we got together on a sleepy sunday and just got in the studio and he's just a magician you know like being able to use his equipment and just his library of sounds that he's collected over the years it's just phenomenal so you know that's awesome yeah. I mean, <laughs> very I'm lucky that's for his. sure <laughs> so yeah you're lucky but also i mean he obviously picked you for a reason i'm sure there's a lot of people that would like to collaborate with him but I'm sure he saw something in, in you that he wanted to maybe like show you the way or take you under his wing. And I think you can hear there's like a, a real kinship in, in the music. Um, what was the name of that song? Hearts. Hearts. Yeah, Hearts. You right can on. download it online yep, from my SoundCloud. <laughs> um, yeah, Adam's just, he's, he's still such a little kid, you know? <laughs> and so when he sees that someone else gets as excited as him, you, you know, he. I guess he feels that kinship. So he, he's definitely um, just follows his passion. And so I guess he saw that in me that I was, just, you know, like all about it. I just, just made that decision. I was following it. And, you know, um, it's beautiful when you get that kind of encouragement and help and mentorship. Yeah. You know, which I, I haven't had a lot. It's really blowing me away how many people have helped, like you, you know, um, helped to, you know, get my name out there and put me forward. And I'm just, I feel very grateful for it. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I'm, I'm just doing, you know, what I think is my job, which is to spread, you know, the different art and artists around that are doing it, doing it well, and also doing it on their own terms. And I wanted to get, you mentioned about you made a choice to chase your passion. So when you arrived here in 2009, you were not yet DJing, right? No. Okay. No. Um, um, how did that come about? When did you, or what was like that tipping point moment where you went from the dance floor, like, I gotta be on the decks? Yeah, well, uh, for most of my career, I've been a web developer, a programmer. Um, so that satisfied me to some degree um, but 
any spare moment that I had, I was chasing dance floors, right. you know. So I kind of always knew that I, I had that passion, um, but it was more on the listening end of things. And uh, it was actually in 2015, uh, my father passed away suddenly, and uh, that kind of spun my world around. Um, he died at 62, so pretty young and yeah it was it was very unexpected and so you know that was a, a big thing to just happen in my life you know brings all those emotions and makes you realize how precious life is how short life is um, and once I kind of came out the other end of that uh, I realized that I couldn't waste any more time and um, uh, he was a musician. He was. Uh, his name's Andy Fraser, and he was in a blues rock band uh, in the UK called Free. That was his first big band, and then he had quite a few projects since then. Um, and he dedicated his whole life to music. Uh, he never actually did anything else. He started gigging when he was 15, and he just kept going. And he spent you know, so much of his life and energy and time in the studio making music. Uh, and so I guess that gave me an idea of what that kind of life of passion looks like. And so, yeah, I, you know, it was just carpe diem, seize the day. Uh, yeah. do, do with your life what you really want to be doing. And from that point, I realized that that's what I want to be doing. You know, music has always been my first passion and I have to get on with it and, and do it, you know? So, um, yeah, it was the first time that I'd really made a choice like that, that wasn't attached to any kind of, um, I should be doing this or like the proper thing or the more adult thing is to do this. It was just like, you just got to follow your dream. So, you know, just pulled the plug on it, said, okay, I'm going to be a DJ. I'll get Ableton and learn it and collect music and just start, you know. And uh, it's just snowballed from there. Wow, that's beautiful. Um, thank you for sharing that. I I want to tell the listeners at home that Jasmine's being modest. It wasn't just a blues rock band from Britain. They're one of the most important bands of the time. <laughs> Your father's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They have songs on thousands of compilations the world over. I knew all right now when I was an infant, you know, like it was huge here, you know. So I, I, I want you to know that we, you know, Americans revere free and your your dad as a bassist and a songwriter. I'm not just saying that because I'm sitting across from you. Like I was well versed in who he was long before I met you. Wow. And uh, really, the band more than him specifically. Mm -hmm. um, there was a compilation back in the day called Freedom Rock, mm -hmm. and that was like a major song on it. And everybody in growing up knew Freedom Rock, had a copy. Parents had a copy. So, I also That's so interesting yeah. because, I mean, when I, I didn't grow up with my dad, I actually reconnected with him more later in life. Um, and all of that seemed to be bef before my time. So I didn't really know that he was that big, you know? Yeah. Um, and it amazes me that 
people, you know, still talk about him, still remember him. And, you know, when you said that, it just makes my heart just like bloom because um, obviously I have all these memories of him as being who he was for me. Right. But then the fact that he meant so much to so many other people and that they remember him is just awesome. Right on. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about that when you said about, because I also lost my father in 2015. And if you remember, you and I briefly crossed paths at Burning at Man. At Burning Man, when yeah. When we were in the midst of doing our own little uh, paying respects and having a, you know, a way to say goodbye on our own terms. Mm. And uh, I think that that is a big part of like why I've been so interested in your career because what you said a minute ago about you and your dad's spirit and not wasting any time is is similar or parallel to me you know when I was incarcerated when I got out of that situation and my dad had passed I also said to myself there's no more time to waste and that mm. um you know to in essence to honor him and to show that uh I understand the gifts that I've been bequeathed and I'm going to do something with them. And that's why I'm here having this show and that's why I've taken the journalism to you know, a higher level than I did when I was just kind of trying to get free tickets to shows and meet my, my heroes. Mm. Now it's I have a purpose. So I get that, what you're talking about, and I think that that's what drives us to kind of like not see it as a gig or a job um, is your passion and, you, and mm. that's what obviously antenna saw in you and that's something that I recognize in you and I I know that other artists in the industry have also expressed that they see you and uh, I don't know I think that the amount of people in the club and the size of your font on the posters I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's showing you know an evolution and I think you you know you deserve it you work hard it comes from a, a beautiful place so I think it um, it makes it a lot easier for me to follow this path as well I probably uh, would have struggled a little bit more had I tried to do this earlier on in life uh, Same. for for one I'm quite an introvert I'm pretty shy and um, you know, when it's really, for me, it's about my passion for the music and my connection with the music and the people that can share that with me. And so uh, I can really remove like my ego from it, you know, because it's, um, you know, I've, I've always felt that in dancing, just like that uh, amazing, I guess, flow state that happens. Yeah when you can really lose yourself in the music and so that's what I'm following and that's what I'm trying to create for other people so I can you know not think about myself being on a stage or you know whatever and I think more about that person that I can see on the dance floor that you know they've got that big grin on their face they're like you know yeah. letting it rip they're getting down hard like that for me is, is that's what I'm chasing yeah well it's okay. you gotta be getting a lot of it because I look around last <laughs> night or any of the number of times I've seen you and there's a lot of teeth in the audience <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean seeing a lot of big grins you know Do what I love seeing in the bay area stank face 
doesn't uh, happen anywhere else. Right. <laughs> Everyone gets their stank face on and gets down really hard. It's the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially in the East Bay. Right. For sure. <laughs> Do you feel like um, maybe that you, your talents in DJing um, are musical, kind of like hereditary? Do you feel like you're, you got something in the DNA uh, from your dad or from your family in general that's sort of led you to music or is this something that you feel like you found totally on your own terms uh i do feel like there's something genetically there um and my, my dad actually mentioned something like that too uh we've actually got some heritage that we don't exactly know where it's from uh it's african he was an eighth black uh i'm a 16th um and he would always say that he got some like calypso groove through that bloodline. Right. Um, and one of these days we should go do the tests and find out exactly where that's from. But I do feel like there's a certain groove uh, that I don't know. I, I'd like I'd like to think so anyway. I've got yeah. a little bit of extra oomph <laughs> from that. Um, I, I mean, I, there's also like the nurture part of it, um, which was very much my mom. I grew up with my mom and she uh, found this amazing uh, Hindu ashram. Uh, it's not exactly Hindu, it's pretty open format, but it's in the Hindu tradition. Okay. So uh, she found that uh, about a year before I was born. And um, so I grew up uh, in a, a lot of ashrams, and so there was a lot of focus on chanting. And so, you know, I grew up kind of crawling around in the back of the hall where, you know, there was hundreds of people chanting and getting to ecstatic states through yeah. music. So I definitely feel like that influenced um, why I pursue music to get to reach those states. That's deep. <laughs> For real. I mean, like, I do a lot of these interviews. It's not often that I get just kind of like, wow. And that is really profound. I, I never knew that about your maternal heritage, the ashram or any of that. And yes. now when you think about you as a, as a toddler or as an infant or whatever, like crawling around and like your first perceptions, your first sensory, you know, interpretations were chanting and, and ecstatic states through music of course yeah you're going to be like charged with that kind of yeah, it's powerful spirit. you know like some of the chants there was you know almost a thousand people um all chanting together and you know cool indian drums going and harmonium and beautiful instrumentation and uh, my favorite was the dancing saptas which is a sapta is a long chant uh, might be all night it might be longer sometimes um, but then you'll have uh, a dancing circle so the um, the musicians will be in the center well there'll be a fire in the center and then there'll be musicians around that and then there'll be the dancers around the musicians uh, and it's a very simple dance but it's beautiful and so you know, when I was a kid, I'd get to dress up in colorful silk saris and, you know, basically like a princess, you know, <laughs> and um, get into these ecstatic states through dancing. 
um, and that real, really strong feeling of community. So that for sure has influenced, you know, why I um, am so attracted to dance floors these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a home in more ways than one. Mm-hmm. And awesome. I love it when I can get, uh, you know, samples of chants that I yeah. used to listen to and weave those in. Um, and, you know, Indian drums, tablas, fantastic. Sure. You know, tablas basically, you know, early trap music as far as I'm concerned. You know, those little yeah. hi-hat beats and then the sliding bass. It's awesome. That's, that is cool. I never thought of that one. <laughs> yeah. I, I love tablas and I always found it in also the faster paced electronic music, lots of like like techno and, and, and trance even, you know, like just Yeah, those. really fast beat and yeah. the, you know, drum rolls, yeah, it's fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about, because you play, uh, you play quote unquote bass music, but you have a lot of flavors of what you do. Like what I enjoyed last night in a after midnight in Oakland is decidedly different than what you might play at an ecstatic dance, which is also different than what you might have played like the first time I saw you, which was like uh, at a, uh, it was at Enchanted Forest in the uh, Saucy Spa, you know, so that was like middle, I didn't see your Is that the uh, midday set? Yeah. And it was just ridiculously hot? Hot, yeah. Yep. <laughs> I just pointing it out that you, you are, are ask to perform in different environments and you don't bring the same product if you will like your set is not the same at and wherever you're asked to play like a lot of djs that's the case but i find yours to be particularly diverse also because you are cool enough that you release a lot of your sets mm -hmm. so you can actually hear your different styles and like me and my friend marika have talked a bunch about we like you in this way and like you that way. <laughs> like I like all of it, but for me, I, I like what last night best. Um, there's, there's two questions here. I want to talk a little bit about the ecstatic dance first. Um, how do you approach that intention-wise when you're like, uh, I'm playing for the ecstatic dance audience? How's that different from Midnight in the Oakland Club? Uh, well, uh, first I'll say that every set that I do... Uh, I plan for that set so you know I know what time it's gonna be and I generally who's gonna be there um, and I definitely craft every set specifically for that um, and try and make it you know new and interesting and um, have make it f fresh so yeah. I'm always thinking you know like if if everyone's heard all my other sets that are on SoundCloud, like what's going to make it sound more fresh? Um, so for ecstatic dance, they, you know, they have a particular format. It's also longer, you know, it can be uh, up to three hours. So, you know, their format is to start very gently, very, you know, meditative um, space and to build up slowly. And um, also, t you know, they ask for a lot of diversity um, so you can kind of uh, get I guess you can get different uh, movements in your body with that diversity and it's also you know to keep it interesting over three hours and um, bring you to uh, a peak state and then wind down at the end and, and bring it back to the center point so uh, because I love you know 
bass music, trap music, hip hop so much. Um, I find a lot of my music is in that domain. But uh, I also have a, a lot, a lot of music in my collection that I haven't even played yet. Um, and I've also got a love of, you know, really beautiful down tempo music. So it's actually a treat for me to be able to put that together. Um, obviously, you can't play that, at, you know, a midnight slot in Oakland. Right. <laughs> um, so it's nice to be able to, you know, pull that stuff out as well. Um, and it's it's a treat to play for the ecstatic dance dance floor um, because people really let themselves go devotion yeah yeah um, and you get dancers that are you can tell they're professional dancers you know you'll see couples that are doing lifts and all kinds right. of crazy cool stuff so to get to play for people that really embody music uh, so well is definitely a treat. Um, yeah. Is it, did yeah. I answer your question? Yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I just was curious, you know, exactly what you, you know, how you approached and like, you know, what differentiated between the two. And I was saying, not that I, I've just never seen you play ecstatic dance proper, mm. but I've listened to some of the stuff you've posted. Yeah. Well, I definitely also, you know, even though it's ecstatic dance, I do want a solid section of throwdown. Yeah. You know, I really um, want to give that to that crowd as well like go in all different directions but like here's the you know still still Oakland we still want to get down right. so you know good chunk of that <laughs> yeah I went to the Oakland ecstatic dance uh, I've only been twice I went once for Becca Dakini and just went for Neptune a couple nights ago and oh, it's, yeah it's so great good. but there's definitely a different vibe in the room than what I'm used to in Nevada City I think I was spoiled in Nevada City we had a we have a great ecstatic dance community there mm -hmm. really tight-knit and like just good vibes and Oakland is huge and um, just not plugged into it on the same level yet but mm. I'm committed to making my way in there you know it was just I was very welcomed and open the same so the same people that are involved with like Enchanted Forest that mm -hmm. do the ecstatic dance stuff in Nevada City mm -hmm. um, so anyway if you ever find yourself the opportunity to play that dance it would be awesome. I drive up. I drive the three hours from here to there. Oh yeah. To see you play <laughs> e dance in Nevada City. Yeah, because that audience or that that I should say audience that dance collective or massive is special. You know. Yeah, I love Nevada City. Yeah. I drive the ten hours to go play <laughs> up there. Oh hey, for maybe one of them will hear this podcast and uh, come up with an idea and you get a Naughty Princess thing. Music at Gmail. <laughs> yeah, Naughty Princess Music at Gmail. Well, I, I mentioned how much I liked what you presented last night, and I have to say a big part of the allure of Naughty Princess is you're, you know, beautiful with the uh, crown on, and, you know, you always just comport yourself with this grace and elegance, um, but the music is, like, as street and hood <laughs> as it gets. <laughs> It's such a polarity. It's such a, a just a yin and yang, and it works so well because you don't, you never break that grace, that elegance. You never, you know, you never deviate from carrying yourself as such. I mean, you're a down to earth person. You're sitting in the back of a minivan with me in a rainy day in San Francisco. <laughs> I'm not saying you're anything other than you carry yourself on stage and in in, in the music scene with a, a level of grace and a, and a aura of humble confidence that runs 
kind of the opposite from when you just hear you, it's really hood. You know, yeah. it is really street. <laughs> so I wanted I to ask if, is, yeah, well, I was going to say that that's something that's kind of calculated, I imagine. Um, well, I've always liked dressing up. Um, right. Do well. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, I guess since I adopted Naughty Princess as a name, I've had even more fun with the whole dress-up thing. Right. And I do find, it just kind of tickles me to, you know, show up all, like, pretty, pretty and all the, like, bling and looking very dainty. And then, you know, then the dirty comes out. Right. And <laughs> I don't know. It's just, I, I think it's kind of funny. It's, it is. The whole, the whole thing for me is a little bit, like, tongue-in-cheek. Like, you right. know, such a crazy adventure to decide to go on. So I'm definitely having fun with it in that regard. And I like, uh, you know, just people have a certain expectation of you by the way you look. Like, I'll often show up and you know say oh you know i'm djing tonight and people just kind of assume what you're going to sound like based on what you look like and they're like oh you know do you play house music or down tempo or something like that and i'm like nope (laughs) (laughs) just stay till the end you know and then i love it people come up to me like oh what's your name again dirty nasty princess oh that's great yeah that's got to be fulfilling too at the end of the night yeah See yeah. the same faces that kind of like maybe blew you off in the beginning. Now they're just like, oh my, you know. Well, the best part, like last night, is when the security gives you a high five oh, right. on the way out because you know they they didn't pay to be there. <laughs> and they still loved it. Yeah. yeah. So that's cool. Well, I mentioned I was going to ask you a question like this, and since we're on the topic of hood music and street music, and you being a female DJ. Um, It's no secret that there's a fair amount of misogynistic lyrics and aggression towards women and, I mean, you could say worse, inherent in not all, but a healthy percentage of trap music and hip-hop music. So much so that it's, it's kind of become normalized where you'll see some otherwise, like, conscious quote-unquote woke people who would never dare utter a racist or misogynist sentence singing along pumping their fists to lyrics that are you know pretty bad Mm. um and you know i know you to be somebody in the in the music community um i don't know would you self-identify as a feminist oh yeah okay totally i didn't want to give you the label so you're a feminist yep in a male-dominated industry like turntablism or djing or Mm-hmm. You know, and you're playing a genre of music that is at home in that that place of misogyny. How do you navigate that, like consciously? Like, uh, how do you? Um, I don't want to say sleep at night or look at yourself because, of course, you're gonna you're just playing songs. But we both know that there's messages in those songs, and that you and I both self-identify our whole being with music. Mm-hmm. So if people are doing that then it's it's a slippery slope and and totally i just want to hear your take on it yeah um i you know i i actually tune out lyrics quite a bit i'm very focused on beats and bass and that's that's what i'm usually hearing and so before i started djing you know i'd you know 
pick up on lyrics and just be like, oh, I'll just leave the dance floor now and, you know, somewhat ignore it. But I definitely can't ignore it anymore. And, um, you know, I'll be, I'll be searching for new music and I'll find a track and just like, oh my God, this is the best beat ever. I can never play that because this guy's just rapping the most horrible lyrics on top of it. Um, so, and sometimes it, it's frustrating because they'll mumble. It's like they right. know they're saying something terrible, so they're mumbling it under their breath. Um, and so, you know, I'll be listening to tracks and be like, what are they saying? Oh, what are they saying? Oh, you know, and really trying to weed that out. Um, there's definitely some tracks that I have played and I haven't heard the lyrics properly and I've felt terrible about it. Um, there was this one track that I played at Burning Man and I actually, it was a, a hard track, but I actually thought that it had feminist lyrics, but I got the lyrics wrong. And uh, this girl actually... Somebody brought it to your attention, huh? She wrote to me and she told me that she had brought all her friends to my set, ridden across the playa to come and see my set. And she heard that song and it just made her heart drop. And I was just like, oh my gosh, that's, that's horrible. Tough, yeah, so but good for her for yeah, writing to I, you. I thanked her for it. And I, I mean, that's like, going to have a positive impact because now you're more conscious of that. Yeah. because of that interaction yeah I wrote back to her and I was like I'm so sorry I thought that this was the lyric and it wasn't um, I ended up I just posted that on SoundCloud and I took it off and I took this the, that track out of it um, and reposted it without it okay um, and then I posted stuff on my social media basically apologizing for playing it I have a vague recollection of that yeah of that post yeah um, so that, you know, it's great to be held accountable in that way. Yeah. Um, and I definitely, you know, like I, I will uh, remove lyrics from songs if I can. Scrub you know. Them. Yeah, I'll just like, I'll switch out the lyrics. So what's actually playing doesn't make any kind of sense. Right. But, you know, the beat's still there. So um, cool. I'll do DJs that. DJs do that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, if you, if you ever hear like this naughty, in any of my right. tracks, that's like erasing what was there before. That's so. <laughs> a tasteful way to do it that yeah. doubles as like advertising. Yeah, you know, it's just marketing. Like naughty. Yeah, Don't naughty. say that. No. Yeah. Um, I've become hypersensitive to even the word bitch. Sure. You know, I, I'll still play a couple of tracks uh, with that word in it. And, you know, sometimes it's just kind of like a colloquial use yes. of it. I have a struggle um, with that myself. Yeah. Um, I don't like to use the word, but I'm just saying like when Anderson Pack says it, it feels different than when, you know, X street rapper says it. But then I, you know, I made that distinction and somebody called me on it. They're like, the word is the word. It, yeah. it carries the same power. It doesn't matter if you like the one song or think the one artist is, is you know, has a attitude, good attitude about women. It doesn't mean he can stay bitched and it's specifically Anderson Pack is the one that struggle with because he's he's somebody we, we like to th believe in you know or like think of as a, a good guy and he flippantly uses the word bitch so it's unfortunate yeah it's a it's a tricky one because it's so much part especially of hip-hop culture yeah. and I know that they're not using it necessarily you know it can be used towards women but 
often people are using it in regards to just kind of anyone or even right. guys. So, but it, but it's actually it's it is still that word because the way it's used in referring to men is like you're effeminate, you're less than a man, you're scared, mm. you're all these things that the patriarchy applies to women, which mm. isn't true, but that's just what people think. Oh, don't don't be a girl about it. That kind of stuff. That's where the he's a bitch comes from. So I feel like that's just as bad mm. as calling a female one because you're applying all these negative traits that are supposedly inherent to women. Mm. So, yeah, I I struggle with it. Like I'll never utter the word the n-word. I will never rap along to it. I won't write it out. Mm. Um but I struggle with bitch just because, as you said, it's a colloquialism. Going back to, like, 93 with Snoop Doggy Dog when I was in seventh grade. and Too, too short for the Oakland folks. Just hollering, bitch, you know, bitch. It's, like, humorous. The fact that both of those words have sort of been adopted by a community to kind of, like, take the venom out of it. Or take the power yeah. back. Right, right. Um, I can kind of understand it, but I still just wish that we just forget those words yeah. you know um i'm with you i would yeah. sign up for that and there's there's some sets that you know um i feel like i guess a little bit more street um but then there's some sets like ecstatic dance where it's just like it's got to be squeaky clean and i'm definitely you know i feel like that's the way to go um and I'd really love to, you know, whenever I find lyrics that I can passionately sing along with, that's what I want to be playing, you know? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely tricky uh, because it's so widespread in that genre. It is. It's, it's very, hard to avoid. Yeah, it's very hard yeah. to avoid. But. Well, I, th- I think that as long as you're conscious of it and you're making a good faith effort to keep that energy out of your music without sacrificing the aggression and the power and the bass and the beat mm. you know that's all people can ask you know mm. no one's going to be perfect and like you said you miss a lyric here or there and a fan brings it to your attention and you do something about it mm. i just wanted you to be heard on it i i wanted to give you the opportunity to address that because i know it's important yeah and the other thing i wanted to ask while we're on the topic is you know there's been a lot of stuff in the news with me too and uh, rape culture and the patriarchy and you know there was a one big fell swoop of like cancel culture where certain dj we don't have to get into who or what but there was djs that were outed and record producers and all the way up to movie producers and stuff um, but now like the dust is settled and lots of us myself included have said you know i'm on your team and i don't want to see that happen and i want to be a part of the solution how are we doing as a culture a year after me too like you as a female dj in the scene somebody who commiserates with all sides of the culture the good the bad and unfortunately the ugly um, are we any better off from having lived through that or uh, we still suck um i mean i don't know if i've got all you know, that much of a perspective on the whole you know the whole scene the whole industry right? i've got um my little how about yours yeah angle on it um you know I, one thing that i am very careful about especially with a name like naughty princess 
is to really be very clear about how I expect to be treated. Um, and if anyone starts going down the road of, oh, naughty princess, oh, I guess you're a bit of a, you know, slut or a hooker or whatever, you know, um, I'm like, no, princess, like, yeah. treat me with complete respect. And um, I'm actually even quite um, reserved in that way, you know, like, I don't really dress very risque at all um and part of that is because I don't want people to get the idea that I'm sort of like putting myself out there to be objectified right. in any way shape or form um and I've, I've sort of always been that way like if anyone seems like they're dancing around some area that is just not okay or appropriate I'll call them out like straight away, you know, and start schooling them. So, um, I think for myself, I, uh, it's good because it pushes me to be really clear with people and, um, it, it's kind of fun to, uh, have that come up and then deal with it. And I think it's a, it's a good way to be able to address some behaviors yeah. and um, you know just on my social media and stuff I really like saying things about um, how women should be treated um, I've noticed yeah and to really uh, not at all focus on any kind of um, objectifying you know right. there's definitely some people you know on Instagram that get onto your account and be like oh naughty princess rah 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 and you know um, yeah I shut them down pretty quick I bet. I <laughs> yeah. bet. I've never sensed anything like hypersexualized about your performance or your energy or no, your I, presenting I, yourself at all yeah you know? naughty is a word but it's mm. you know that naughty or nice we're talking about Christmas I mean there's nothing inherently hypersexualized about naughty it's it's just people jump to conclusions and again it comes back to my question which is like dj culture rape culture patriarchy all that you know there's all that loaded stuff so people are bringing that to the word naughty your music and your persona does i don't i don't get that sense so i'm mm. i'm glad to hear that that's a minority and it doesn't happen often and when it does you you stomp it out quickly mm. I'm, I'm relieved to hear that because I, I often wondered if you were approached on that CD level about that sometimes yeah. yeah they're like oh you're a naughty princess are you they'll look you up and down and you're like yeah I'm a princess <laughs> the beats are naughty right check it out <laughs> it's a good comeback and I like uh, I actually um, you know so when dancers perform with me um, I've, I've actually written out like a just like my take on yeah. things so what you expect well, just what, what my angle is, because um, some people just kind of assume it's one thing, right. and so I just, you know, have this little blurb about where, where I'm coming from with it, where it's like, you know, it's really not, a, to me, about being hypersexual. Um, it's, uh, you know, for me, naughty, when I, when I first thought of the idea, it was like this 
picture of his like little princess like running away from her tower you know off to play a bass party you know so uh it wasn't really anything sexual in it at all it was just sneaking out yeah it was like a feeling of freedom and breaking the rules um helping me uh you know find my phone and then uh finding a spot for us to do the interview where you know i was initially concerned we wouldn't have enough time for you to have your own episode but we do so you will so this is great Um, (laughs) i want to take the opportunity uh to tell the listeners out there you can find uh, naughty princess on soundcloud at the naughty princess okay soundcloud.com slash the naughty princess and uh facebook naughty princess instagram what is it dj naughty princess Princess. on instagram Cool, and we'll, we'll hyperlink a mix or two into the uh, podcast website so that when you listen to the interview, you can just sample some music while you're there. Oh, yeah, there's plenty to listen to. Yeah. And I'm always pumping out more, so stay tuned. We certainly will. <laughs> uh, anyway, this is going to be uh, B. Getz signing off for the Up for Life podcast from San Francisco, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Naughty Princess. Golden loaf bread offers down-to-earth economy in every big delicious slice. Yes, indeedy. Thank you, Jasmine Frazier, the naughty princess, for that phenomenal chat in the back of your gold minivan in the rain in some random San Francisco neighborhood. Thank you again for seeing that I got my phone back in short order. Um, There's a lesson there, I'm sure. And, uh, yeah, everybody check out Naughty Princess on SoundCloud, festivals, She's out there doing the damn thing, doing it well, sounding, looking, real good doing it. So, we're going to move on to what you're hearing right now, which is this cat named Daily Bread. Uh, Daily Bread is a producer that is based out of Atlanta. Uh, this project that you're hearing now is a collaboration with Philly MC STS. It's called Ed- Edgewood and Boulevard. And uh, he talks a little bit about it in the interview. The reason this uh, came across my desk is because of a cat in Colorado named Whit Hawkins, who is a man of many hats. He works for Sound Tribe. He's worked for lots of artists. Pretty Lights, he had a major role with Pretty Lights uh, on stage, you know, team. Um, He's just a, a major cat in that world. And he thought that I should be hip to Daily Bread and dude was right he also manages mzg we love the twins but when the opportunity came for for me to be able to talk to daily bread whose name is Rhett, um i you know jumped on it because if wit thought it was a good idea then i'm fairly certain it is and he was right we had a great uh short chat 
in the back of his tour van uh, in the pitch black before he took the stage to open for Opio here in Berkeley, California. And uh, he offered some surprising and uh, interesting answers to the questions I asked him and told a couple of humorous stories. Uh, it was a good interview and hopefully uh, it will pique some of your curiosities about daily bread. Um, like I said, he's out of Atlanta, but he's got he's deep in the game in Colorado, connected to the you know, Pretty Lights music, Pretty Lights movement, and so forth. But he's doing his own thing too. And I really like the newer material that he dropped with STS. Um, just has a really nice aesthetic to it, and they have an awesome chemistry. So check out Edgewood and Boulevard by Daily Bread and STS, and just check out Daily Bread in general. Um, Coming up a few minutes with the man himself, Daily Bread, on the Up For Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. We'll be back after this. And we're here live and direct. This is the Up For Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. We're coming to you from Berkeley, California. We're right outside the Cornerstone, where we've got Opio and Daily Bread and I'm lucky I got a few minutes with the man Daily Bread before his set a little later on. So thanks for uh, coming on the show. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It's cool to be in California. It's my first time out this way uh, to play some music outside of uh, the festival this past uh, summer. Yeah, that's when I caught you for the first time, the the Wave Spell Festival. And yeah, I see you rocking the Braves hat here. So uh, you, I know you're from Atlanta. Is that where you're uh, currently living? Yeah, I'm currently in Atlanta, a uh, little little place east of the city called Stone Mountain, and I live there with uh, a couple other guys and that are my best friends. A couple of them actually are producers as well, uh, Artifacts and Durley. Shout out to those guys. But yeah, right. man, it's a cool situation in Atlanta. Right on. Yeah, man. There's a storied history. I was actually having a conversation the other day about how even though people, uh, you know, credit New York City with being the birthplace of hip hop, if you really look at it for the better part of two decades. The, the mecca, the epicenter of hip-hop culture has been Atlanta. So I guess that's like probably where you got your roots, where you got your inspiration from. What were some of the artists that you were coming up, Atlanta artists that were like, you know, your peeps? Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of funny being from Atlanta. Like, I was always exposed to the crunk stuff that was going on. Like, I was like a product of the crunk era. Like, when I was getting driven to school and stuff, like, uh, you know, the older kids, you know, they'd be playing like Little John, Eastside Boys and stuff like that. But see, what was weird is back then I was super into skateboarding and I was getting fed a lot of New York style music. Um, that's how I kind of discovered RJD2 and uh, like Lord Finesse, the DITC crew, like all these guys that were big influences on me weren't really from Atlanta at first, you know, but it was kind of like the Atlanta influence got brought out later once I started making the big collages, like with the samples and stuff. I started sort of like drawing back on those <laughs> those times where I was getting fed like all the Little John stuff. But uh, yeah, man, I would say I would say through, you know, <clears throat> that's a good example, I'd say, of sort of Atlanta's influence. The crunk shit, yeah. yeah exactly. I remember that. I, it's funny you bring up the the golden era New York City like you know digging in the crates Lord Finesse obviously is a god I was gonna say that I hear a lot more boom bap kind of drums in your shit and like uh, the, the way you create your beats at least from what I've listened to is much more of that classic primo Pete Rock New York ethos so when I was reading your bio before we were going to do this, it said that you really got started on the MPC. You hear a lot of cats that are always on Ableton or software. Um, 
what was that like for you was it like how'd you get started on the mpc and like you know how did you learn mm -hmm. to do it yeah the mpc was really fun sort of era I, I was started i bought my first mpc in 2007 and i had a i was really inspired by an experience i had at a festival in atlanta called echo project i was there working for a company um energy drink company actually and i got exposed to an rjd2 live set and he was up there messing with an mpc 2000 xl and it sort of clicked for me at that point sort of what he was doing and how he was producing his music so the money i had made from working promo at the festival i went and uh on craigslist and brought a bought an mpc 2000 classic with like floppy drive and stuff and that was like when i started like bringing my record collection into like loops and stuff and making like beats and just i got really inspired and so it was a, i was like a record snob for a while i didn't really have a synth or anything i would just loop up records and i'd have like uh, a crate of breaks and then a crate of like open samples and i would just mix and match and chop away and sort of do everything in the box and just two track stuff out into like garage band <laughs> it was horrible mixes and stuff but it was just fun because it was just all about the process you know yeah, I mean, that's a traditionalist approach to things. A lot of kids now, man, they get a computer, they get some software, they drag and drop, and yeah, it's over. Yeah, the limitations actually would almost force you to make the most out of, out of you know, out of those limitations. And so it was cool. Because Do more focused, with less. Yeah, it made you focus more on the loops you were sampling and the way you were chopping them and stuff like that. And now it's, I feel like that's not something that, you know, necessarily... It gets glazed over these days because of how easy it is to chop. You know, you know, you can chop sixty-four transients in the click of a button, whereas like on the MPC, you had to go through the record, and you know, you only had a certain amount of really pads you could work with and banks, and it was just a, the limitations made you think a little bit more precisely, I guess you could say. And and do you find that being schooled that way, uh, you know, affects your process even now, even if you're not using the MPC? Yeah, it definitely does because everything still starts in the crates. Um, I I'm not as selective, I'd say, with uh, these days as as my chops. You know, it's not it's not as I I, I tend to chop and then sort of bring everything t together um, rather than you know have an idea and then chop that out of the record, sort of like I did back then, back when I was just working with the MPC. But uh, I definitely. The workflow is still the same. Yeah, it's still the same. It's just I employ all the, you know, I have a DAW now <laughs> that I'm more proficient in and stuff like that. So I get to sort of just, sort of just kind of like took those skills and unlocked modern production techniques and stuff like that, you know. Got more into sound design and stuff like that. Right on. Something that's not necessarily a part of old school hip hop is sound design. It's sort of like a lo-fi thing, the, the whole boom bap ethos. Right. But we're also obviously a, a part of this sort of electronic music revolution. We're here with, you know, you're touring with Opio, direct support for Opio. Um, how do you feel about, you know, you know, bringing the sound design and sort of that, those colors to the hip hop paradigm? Mm -hmm. It's, it's interesting. I, I'm proud of, of sort of making, you know, the, the sort of EDM and hip hop stuff from like sample based sort of mesh together. Um, it, it there's you know it's something that i've gotten to be pretty passionate about and um there was you know shout out to like michael menner and the pl crew and a lot of those guys because they were the, the first sort of guys that i heard doing that type of stuff and um it was really cool i remember that was super motivating but uh i um uh, yeah 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 i um it's fun, you know, sort of finding different ways to mesh the two and not make them sound like too one sound, you know, it's too organic or too too electronic. It's it's 
it's fun sort of trying to find that balance <laughs> yeah like a happy medium between yeah, exactly them. that's sort of what my sound has sort of come to be is sort of that happy balance between the two i've noticed man that you know we we've got limited time here i know you got to get to your set so i want to fast forward to the current um and your manager is good fellow you know wit hit me yeah, up with the wit. yeah shout out to wit uh Fox hit me up with the uh the new record that you just put out uh, with no. STS. Yes. He's a Philly guy, right? Because I'm from yes, Philly. I, yes. I seen that guy back in the day at the Blockley in Philly. Yo, yeah. How, how did you connect with him and what's that project about? Man, my man Slim. Yeah, shout out to Slim. Uh, sh- yeah, STS, Sugar Tongue Slim. He, I became a fan of his through the, the work he was doing with RJD2 and stuff like that. Um, and so when he put out, I think I heard... Um, hate to see you leave first was a, was a single they did and i was just i was like man i was like this hey I, I couldn't believe he was like from atlanta had atlanta roots and i hadn't heard of him and so i just kind of was he was on my radar super hard and then i saw him and rj put out a whole record and so i got on that and started pestering him a little bit on social media like on instagram and stuff and after about a year just pestered him uh we finally linked up and uh, I gave him some beats that he was into and we linked up at the studio and got um, the first joint we got done was uh, the greatest comeback. And after that, we almost we just kind of immediately decided to do a project because of how easy it flowed out. We got that track done in one night. And, well, um, where was the studio? It was in East Atlanta. It's uh, called Headspace Sound. Uh, shout out to Mike Headspace. But uh, we recorded pretty much the whole album there. Um, I made the beats, you know, in my lab, like my project studio at the crib, and then we'd bring the two tracks out to Headspace and have Slim do the vocals. And we, I mean, we we were able to get like two or three tracks done a night, like each session. We'd record from about shoot from about nine to two a.m. nine nine p.m. two a.m. sessions, and sometimes we go a little bit later, but we were able to knock it out in like three four sessions and then um kind of put the finishing touches on it in about four or five months it's a really fun process it was cool because he's such a pro you know he got his start um doing stuff like with the roots and he's been around for a while writing and it's really cool man just to to work on that with him because he's so seasoned you know taught me a lot about the process right on man it's good when the veteran cat's gonna put you on game you know but organically where you're just working together it's not yeah like- yeah it was a lot of res- like it was cool because there just grew like a lot of mutual respect between this kind of formed and it created a really good you know really cool friendship and uh, a really good working relationship and we're you know we'll be we've got he's he's he'll be featured on my next project he's got a track on it already and we're still we've got stuff planned we'll be we'll keep working and doing stuff so Right on, man. Um, I want to just about backtrack for a sec because I was reading about you and I saw that you have two full-length solo LPs, right? right. And uh, the second one, you actually moved out to Colorado and oh, to record yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so you spent a fair amount of time out there. And how'd you get dialed out there? Yeah. So last summer, I went out and spent some time in Colorado, uh, leading up to the Pretty Lights Red Rocks weekend they did last year. I was actually uh, opening up the first of three artists out there. It was really cool. So I spent I had an opportunity to go out there and spend the summer and a couple months after that. And um, it was a fun experience, man. Like living out in Denver, um, you know, it's always been such an epicenter for like dance music and stuff like that. And it's like the the ATL is to hip hop. Yeah, there's it's a different. lot of enthusiasm for what we're doing too. Um, so oh, it was a natural move, and it was a really cool to just move there for a summer and absorb like the countryside, and you know get to go to shows and stuff. It serves every Wednesday, and um, 
Yeah, just shout out Dave Sheldon. Yeah, yeah, and sort of hit that that show at the end of the summer and get to play Red Rocks. It was yeah. it was a really fun summer. And then over the winter, ended up getting an opportunity to move back to Atlanta for a really solid price and get my boys to move in with me. So that's what sort of made that move happen for you know this past year. And we're probably going to keep that situation rolling since it's been good for productivity and everything. You know. Right on, man. Well, I'm looking forward to see what happens, man. I know you got to get in there. you got to uh, hit the stage in a few minutes. Uh, we're at, for those of you listening at home, we're, we're here in Berkeley, but we're actually across the street from the venue in a spinner van, pretty much pitch black, uh, just trying to get this interview in. Uh, so I want to th- say thanks to my man, Rhett Daily Bread, for making the time. And uh, one parting shot, man, what can people look out to uh, for you with the future in terms of performances, uh, releases, what's next? Yeah, so in a couple of weeks I'll be hitting uh, Denver and some sh- and some stops in Colorado with the Break Science Boys, and then I've been working on a couple releases right now. They're a little heavier. Um, we'll release them here in the next couple months, and we've also got a uh, an LP in the works right now with Philos that'll come out on 12 inch. That'll be uh, sort of a late spring. So we've got some music coming pretty quickly, and uh, I'm excited about it, man. Sounds exciting, man. Well, shout out to Wet for uh, hooking it up, and I want to say thanks for uh, taking the time. We're a big break science house. We love Deitch, so the fact that you're going out with them just says, you know, what time it is. So yeah. uh, check out Daily Bread. Um, check them out. Uh, is, is Philos the record label? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Philo- yeah, yeah. Philos. P-H-I-L-O-S records. Yeah, those are my boys. It's the crew. Cool. Well, we'll sign off for now. This is BGAT's Up for Life podcast from Berkeley, California with Daily Bread, and we'll see you next time. podcast episode 12 that was daily bread checking in from berkeley california's tour stop with opio back in mid-january shout out to Rhett, daily bread himself for the time and for the vine and big up Whit hawkins manager hawks nest roster mzg we love the twinsies and you'll be hearing more from that set uh, in the weeks and months to come here on the Up for Life podcast. And we're going to move on to another matter. And you're hearing uh, Jamiroquai live from Swanee Halloween this past October. And on the topic of Jamiroquai, uh, you may remember back in April, they played a show at Bill Graham Civic Auditorium here in San Francisco. It was their first U.S. show in 13 years. I wrote uh, quite a ambitious story about uh, the event. You can read it on Live for Live Music. It's called Manifest Destiny. And uh, like I said, that April concert was their first show on U.S. soil in 13 years, with the exception of their Coachella performance a couple days earlier. But this was a monumental uh, event in Jamiroquai's history, and people flew in from all over the country and really the world uh, for this concert. And 
during the concert, uh, there was a photograph taken of lead singer J.K. Uh, looking rather incredulous while holding a enormous a sack of high-grade cannabis and hashish. Um, the look in his face is precious, so much so that I made it my profile pic, which sent out some confusing messages. People thought that I was responsible for throwing the ganja on stage, and I was always quick to assert that was not me, although I had a similar idea. Um, I didn't follow through with it, but Brandon from Shepherd's Meadow Farm in Mendocino County, California, is the dude uh, who made it happen and uh, claimed responsibility once that photo made the rounds and uh yeah we were connected from that um, and then i've seen him at a few shows here and there in the interim and we've chatted it up a few times and laughed about this and uh, i was able to confirm with the jamiroquai fellas uh, that they did indeed enjoy the gift when i was lucky enough to have an audience with them at halloween so i relayed that back to uh Brandon when I saw him at the Emerald Cup cannabis event in December and I took that opportunity to chop it up with him do a little interview where we talked about the incident in question uh, we talked about his love for Jamiroquai his connection to the band and passion for their music and why he chose the gift and uh, and then we also talk about uh, being a 100% organic certified uh, cannabis farm permitted legal just really at the forefront of um, craft cannabis cultivation out here in glorious Northern California. So yeah, we're gonna we're going to hear from him in a short interview. It's, it was like a really crazy loud uh, convention of sorts. so there's some background noise that might be annoying and I did my best and so did he and appreciate your patience if it the sound is a little bit hairy but the content's good, and I wanted to give this dude an opportunity to be heard and you know, sort of celebrate his gift. Any excuse to play a little bit more Jamiroquai. Um, so what I'm going to do is actually um, I will play the audio of JK coming upon this copious sack of ganja and his reaction on stage. And then we'll hear from Brandon from Shepherd's Meadow Farms and Mendocino Cali, California, Mendocino County, California, and then we'll be back with the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week on the Up for Life podcast with your host, B. Getz. That's a very kind gesture. I don't care as far as. Now I suggest that possibly could be give me a few problems on the plane back home. <laughs> and only sleep could get through that three days. Did you buy that the other day? Anybody see that? Proper fella, nice gentleman, a real gentleman, really nice guy. Okay, we're going to do something off the new album. 
And we're live here at the Emerald Cup. This is B. Getz. You're listening to Yelp Full Life Podcast. I'm here with my man Brandon from Shepherd's Meadow Farm in Mendocino County. Thanks for having a, a minute for us. Oh, thank you for coming by, man. For sure, yeah. Right on. So we're actually going to talk a little bit about Jamiroquai because I have a unique history with this fella here. Um, some of you folks might remember a photo that circulated. I posted it on Instagram. Uh, it was actually posted by a professional photographer of Jamiroquai's San Francisco show. And uh, that's how I came into Brandon's orbit here was from that photograph. So let's talk a little bit about your own history with the band. Uh, how long have you been a fan of Jamiroquai? Well, I first listened to them probably uh, in about 97 when Traveling Without Moving came out. And obviously everybody knows the video for uh, <coughs> Virtual Insanity, won a ton of awards and stuff that year. It was, you know, it's an epic video. And so that was my first experience with them. But that album uh, is basically my dark side of the moon. I mean, it's just a, a pivotal point, uh, point in my life where, uh, you know, the confluence of everything that was going on, plus the music finally like hitting where I felt, you know, felt uh, <clears throat> I don't even know. It's all good, man. You know, sometimes you don't have the words for it. I understand. And I actually found Jamiroquai around that same time. Uh, and it was a, I guess it maybe for me it was a space cowboy that first grabbed me. But uh, one thing that I really loved was uh, you mentioned in the Instagram post about the show that uh, as we're here, you're a grower, you got a, your own company and garden, and you had said that uh, the music of Jamiroquai was something that you would play as you worked with the ladies, you know, the, the plants. So, yeah, my man likes to listen to Jamiroquai and uh, work with the girls in the garden and stuff. And what put me on his radar, like I said, was a photograph that I saw on Instagram that I then, like, reshared and seems like half the world thought that it was me, but it's actually my man Brandon here. So uh, the photograph we're talking about is the one of JK of Jamiroquai holding a sizable sack of weed and hash with a shit-eating grin on his face. Happened in San Francisco. And that's actually uh, really how I found out about this amazing uh, Mendocino County farm called Shepherd's Meadow Farm because Brandon uh, saw the photograph and chimed in and told a story about how it all happened. So Let's get the record straight. It was not me who threw the ganja on stage, but I am wholly in support of that incredible moment. It's the man that's standing next to me, Brandon, was the fella. I'm going to leave it to him and his words. Take us through that mission from when you thought of it to when it happened. Well, it definitely wasn't uh, just me. It's definitely a team effort. Uh, <clears throat> my wife and uh, a bunch of friends and stuff uh, all met up beforehand with a game plan that we would split about a little over a quarter pound, about six ounces between a quarter pound and a half pound. <clears throat> we split it between about seven or eight people and uh, made it through security. I threw, uh, threw it all in a big bag, threw uh, a chunk of hash in there from our, uh, our last run of bubble because I figured that being that they're from England, they probably would uh, enjoy a few splits with that. and. Uh, Put it in a big bag so that it would be comically large and uh, actually attract enough attention that he might actually see it or hopefully one of the crew would see it during cleanup. So uh, I never actually expected him to acknowledge it, uh, you know, let alone find it and stuff. But uh, he acknowledged it and uh, complimented me on, on the act and stuff, uh, although it remained anonymous. Uh, but yeah, I was just glad that he had it, you know. I mean, it meant a lot for me to be able to share some of my art with him. Uh, it's really important for me to 
to express myself, and, and that's how I do it is through my herb. Uh, and it's you know important for me to to get you know love coming back and stuff. And it's it's great that uh, that he showed that to me. It was it was amazing. Praise from Caesar, you know, is really the way I took it uh, because you know he's the space cowboy. Uh, you know, he puts off a chiba chiba vibe. He's been doing it for uh, 20 plus years, you know, and uh, you know I was just stoked to to even just you know be on his radar at all you know so yeah I was it was a beautiful moment man and I gotta say like you talk about the Chiba Chiba vibe like he was a pioneer when it was like before long before it was legal or even cool to be a weed head he was out there singing about ganja so very touching for you to be a ganja grower and love his music and be able to share that gift with him um, so before we go uh, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to tell the people just a little bit about the Shepherd's Meadow Farm and then uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, just to support what you do because oh, yeah, yeah. No, pretty cool. epic farm and epic move you pulled. And I mean, I've seen you at fish shows and stuff. We're on the same team. So yeah. tell the people uh, about your farm, where it is and uh, how they could look you up. So, uh, yeah, we're in um, Mendocino County, just a little south of Laytonville. Um, we're a tiny tiny farm it's a family farm uh, we run about 6,500 square feet uh, we do indoor outdoor and light deprivation uh, our indoor is offset uh, by our on-site solar array and we derive the rest of our power from 100% renewable resources via Sonoma clean power um, yeah I mean we really uh, we try to distinguish ourselves by not running mainstream flavors you know we we don't do OGs, we don't do, you know, Blue Dreams and stuff, whatever. Uh, a lot of our, our strains of our own making. Uh, we source, you know, all of our genetics here in Northern California because that's where the best genetics are. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we're fully organic. We, uh, <coughs> we use nothing but uh, compost teas, uh, guanos, fish emulsion, you know, uh, a lot of bone meal, blood meal. Uh, worked into the dirt early in. We cover crop with uh, clover and stuff to, to reintroduce nitrogen and stuff to the soil. Um, we try and do a lot of regenerative uh, practices. Um, you know, we try and remediate all of the uh, uh, the damage that that an, a non-native plant can do uh, to any ecosystem. Um, so, yeah, I mean, really, uh, you know. Environmental stewardship, like that's a you know that's something that we try and like emphasize and stuff. Whatever, um, we just try and put out uh, a quality product. Uh, I think it's reflected in in how people react to it and stuff. Whatever, where people really like it. So um, yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much it, I guess. Right? You know. The name of your farm? Oh, Shepherd's Meadow Farm. Yeah. In Mendocino County, Shepherd's Meadow Farm. I can say you mentioned earlier about the hash with Jamiroquai. Well. Uh, I asked, and they did enjoy all the treats, but particularly a couple of the guys in the band mentioned, yeah, man, the hash was great. So they pick up what you're putting down, literally. And we're happy to have Shepherd's Meadow Farm and the Up Full Life family. So you can check them out. What, what's uh, the Instagram? Is that the best way to check you out? Yeah, basically, it's the most updated. Uh, it's shepherds.meadow. So S-H-E-P-E-R-D-S dot meadow m-e-a-d-o-w right on well we're super stoked here and we're gonna make sure to let the world know about shepherd's meadow and uh just the legendary move that you pulled um have my respect forever and obviously their respect forever 
and uh, Jamiroquai and the Jamily is a special, uh, you know, fan family, global to be a part of, and you know you are a footnote in the story now. Again, you flatter me. Yeah, well, no, I mean, that's why I'm standing here talking to you. And I wanted to add one more thing outside of what we talked about. And that is when I gave you the opportunity to talk about your brand, you didn't come on some salesmanship. You walk around here and you see these exhibits, and they're awesome. And there's lots of cool, awesome stuff in the weed world. You know, everything from products to, um, you know, companies that are offering services across the board because this is a rapidly exploding industry oh, yeah. and you are as you said self-identified small family farmer and your name is our children's names literally shepherd is our son's name and meadow is our daughter's name so when we say family farm we mean it and that's beautiful but and even better instead of saying hey we've got this strain or hey you know our price points are xyz you stressed uh the environmental footprint and your own responsibility and what you hoped the industry would prioritize in terms of stewardship. And I just wanted to commend you and say that that says a lot about your heart and your intention and what you're out here to do. And that just only makes the other shit we're talking about, like the music and the fun stuff, more beautiful because the person that you know is next to me and is growing the weed and throwing it on stage and sharing it with the people it's coming from that place of intention and that's what the up full life is all about literally it's like when you step up here and and i give you the opportunity to talk about your life's work and you prioritize the environment you prioritize responsibility that's what the up full life is about and those that's why i'm going to play a spot for your brand and you're not going to pay me any money for it because i want to support that and, and tell people about what you're doing you know so that's, yeah no that's awesome yeah, yeah. no I'm, and that you know I'm, we came into each other's radar for a reason yeah right and uh, orbits you know, what's funny is yeah. that like i call it like we call it orbits yeah. because yeah you know it's like it they intersect you know and it's at random intervals you know but it's like it comes together and you know and it does it's it's beautiful that's you know meteor showers orbits intersecting you know it's like the earth's gonna go over here the Perseid meteor shower is going to go over here, but you know, a little while later, boom, intersect again. Perfect, man. And it's funny because I'm not even supposed to be over here. Sound Tribe is playing. I was going there, but I had a really emotional experience at the meter show just because New Orleans is close to my heart. And I was thinking about some friends that are going through it. Um, and that music is like our thing, okay. much like Jamiroquai's art thing. Yeah, yeah. And I just needed to take a walk and uh, for no reason. And. Yeah, yeah. Long story short, uh, instead of being a sound tribe, I just took a lap around this building and found you, and we had this conversation. I know, right? And here at we are. End. Yeah. So at the very end of the event. So yeah. that's again, that's what the Upful Life is all about. So uh, I'm going to sign off now. I want to thank you, Brandon, for coming on the podcast briefly, and we're both a little blazed to have too much of a conversation. So we're going <laughs> to cut it off now, and we're going to pick it up down the road because there's lots of to discuss, and I hope that Shepherd's Meadow Farm is a part of the Up for Life podcast for uh, years to come. Right on. So too, thank man. you for coming on. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. This is B. Guts at the Emerald Cup with the Up for Life podcast, and we'll see you next time.
thank Brandon from Shepherd's Meadow Farm. And uh, yeah, that, that we that was at the end of the Emerald Cup, two days of this ganja convention. And uh, it was clear, listening to that interview, uh, that we had enough blaze, enough ganja, and uh, it really had uh, <laughs> taken a toll on us at that hour. Um, so the interview was a bit silly and disjointed, but there's some good stories there and a good connection. And definitely want to support farmers and people like Brandon. So shout out Shepherd's Meadow Farm and Brandon. And uh, we're going to wrap things up here on the Up for Life podcast with the uh, Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. Um, initially, I'd planned to stay in the electronic music paradigm just because of the symbiotic nature of you know, Naughty Princess, Daily Bread. Um, sometimes I like to switch it up. Sometimes I like to keep it uh, in the same zone. But unfortunately, there was some devastating news over the past couple of weeks since we last had the podcast, and that was the tragic death of a beloved member of the music community and brother to many, Mr. Kofi Burbridge, uh, flute player and pianist keyboardist uh, for a number of collectives through the years most recently with with the Tedeschi Trucks band and really has been uh, Derek Trucks right hand man going back to the Derek Trucks band of the late 90s and Kofi's death has really shaken uh, the extended musical family Um, he is a first ballot spirit of swanee hall of famer when i think of the spirit of swanee music park i often think of kofi and Derek. they're part of the starting five and uh it's hard to imagine uh, the park without their his presence without uh kofi's presence and um i was gonna stay with some electronic music but i decided that uh i wanted to uh, just offer a tribute to Kofi Burbridge uh, in the form of the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. And I'm going to take it back to the first time I ever heard Kofi play with Lettuce. And that was at Bear Creek. Um, he actually played with, uh, just Kofi played with Lettuce in 2008, which was the first Bear Creek. And when I pledged my allegiance to Lettuce, um, and Kofi was a part of that. But the following year, both Derek Trucks and Kofi sat in with Lettuce for an extended stretch. And you're hearing, in the background, you're hearing uh, Derek shredding by any means necessary. Um, Yeah, just thinking back to this magical moment. uh, I wanted to play that music for the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week, so... I also wanted to just tell a brief story about the late Kofi Burbridge. You know, I'm not going to pretend that I knew him at all, really, but uh, I'd been around him a number of times, and one time in particular that really sticks out in my mind is uh, we were backstage at a show in New Orleans. I want to say it was at One-Eyed Jacks, one of those Bear Creek All-Stars events that Paul Levine throws or threw. Um... Or something like that, and uh, 
uh, Adam Deitchman introduced me to Kofi Burbage. He said, you know, Kofi, come here. And, you know, Adam is fond of giving me these very hyperbolic introductions, like the way I would talk about his drumming to somebody. He sort of applies all these superlatives to me and my writing and so forth. Yeah, you know, B-Cats is the legendary writer of our scene and, you know, covers the band, our band, like nobody else. He gave me this incredible introduction to Kofi, and it was like three in the morning. And, uh, and Kofi's like, oh yeah, man, hey, how you doing? And then Deitch kind of peeled away, and it was just me and Kofi, and he was like, man, I know you, man, I know this guy. I just didn't want to interrupt Adam. He was giving you such a great introduction. I just, you know, I wanted you to have that. And we laughed about it and shut the shit for a minute and kept it moving. But it was just such a beautiful thing where he he knew that I was really appreciating all these lovely things that my favorite musician was saying about me in this introduction. And why would he cut him off to say that we'd already met when he could just let him finish it and we could all enjoy that. So... It's kind of one of my lasting uh, impressions and memories of the late Kofi Burbridge, along with dozens of killer performances on flute, on keyboards, from Swanee to Jazz Fest to Jam Cruise, High Sierra. It's such a uh, tragic and earth-shattering loss to the community. Um, but I'm going to stop talking because I hear some flute in the background, so I'm going to let this play out with some flute and then I'm going to just start it over and play the whole 30 minutes of lettuce with Derek and Kofi from 2009 but uh first we're going to hear a little bit of flute right now and then I'll start it up Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week, Lettuce featuring Derek Trucks and the late great Kofi Burbridge, live and direct from the Spirit of Swanee Music Park on November 14, 2009. I'm going to play that by any means necessary, and then making my way back home, and then the We're a Winner Move On Up combo. So uh, that should take us home, pour one out for the dearly departed. Kofi Burbridge, we will miss you when you're gone. You've been listening to episode 12 of the Up for Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and we will see you next time.
Blueprint, you're awesome. Thank you.
Jeffrey Burbridge and Derek Trucks. Hopefully they're gonna stick around for a minute. Right now we'd like to bring up the great Mr. Nigel Hall on vocals, y'all. Get up for Nigel Hall.
would like to dedicate this very special song to y'all. You guys helped to make my time here last year so wonderful, so sweet. And I want to dedicate this to y'all.
forget everybody, please. Good job. 